I'll read this morning from Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to begin at verse 10. So Matthew 18, sorry, Matthew 18 and verse 10. Uh, We're in a section uh, where Jesus is teaching particularly about the church. In fact, it's probably the the most extended teaching Jesus gives on church explicitly uh, within the Gospels. Uh, And uh, this morning we're thinking particularly about how we're to relate to one another when we sin against one another. So Matthew 18 and verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it's not the will of my father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray as we look at this part of God's word. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the prophet sent from above, the one on whose lips were the very words of God. And so we pray that you would speak to us again this morning. Send your spirit to uncloud our minds. I send your spirit to soften our hearts, we pray. In your own name. Amen. Uh, Back in the days when uh, Christians cared about their buildings and didn't see them just as glorified rain shelters, uh, when they came to construct church buildings, more often than not, they were built in the shape of a cross. Uh, That's the case in many of our buildings in uh, in the UK, isn't it? You go into an old church building and it'll be shaped like a cross. And that is a good picture for what we're looking at this morning. Uh, Jesus, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, has moved from talking about um, his own death to what the church should look like in light of that death. Uh, And the basic principle is uh, that we should have a cross-shaped church. Uh, The gospel message that forms the church should also form the life of the church, uh, the discipleship uh, of the church. Uh, Over the last a few weeks as we've been looking at this section of Matthew's gospel, uh, we've seen Jesus' overwhelming desire to save a people, to form the church. Uh, Church, of course, in the Bible isn't the building, uh, but the people. And we've seen along the way uh, that various people have tried to get in the way, have been stumbling blocks to him. Uh, It began with Peter, who tried to persuade him not to go to the cross. Uh, Jesus rebuked him, called him a stumbling block. You're trying to trip me up in my plan to save people. And even said that it was Satan himself who was working through Peter. But Peter gets up to it, the same thing straight away uh, as they go up the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, he tries to persuade Jesus to stay up in glory. Uh, but again, Jesus has to say no. In fact, that time God the Father interrupts, interrupts Peter's plan for a, a glorious mountaintop experience uh, and says, listen to Jesus as Jesus again speaks about his death and resurrection and so they head down the, the mountain and uh, they have a 
uh, a section of teaching on what it means to, to live by faith. Okay, we're not to live by sight, as Peter was wanting to do at the top of the mountain. Glory, glory. But for now, the church is to live uh, by faith. And then Jesus begins to form and shape uh, this church. Uh, just last week, uh, we saw that he was willing to put aside his own rights in order to make sure it was as easy as possible for people to believe the gospel. And again, he came back to this idea of stumbling blocks. Uh, the particular incident was to do with tax. Uh, the tax men came round to, to pay the tax, uh, to, to fund the temple. And by rights, Jesus shouldn't have paid. Uh, he is the son of God, that sons of kings don't pay taxes. But he paid it in order not to be a stumbling block. And then went on to teach his disciples likewise. In your attitude to other people, in your attitude towards your own sin, don't, don't be stumbling blocks. What matters is this gospel that I'm about to bring into action by dying on the cross then shapes everything you do. Jesus is concerned uh, not just with accomplishing salvation in his death on the cross, but then applying it, getting that salvation out, which is going to happen through the church. And that, that is uh, uh, the context of what we're looking at today. Uh, particularly that the second half of the passage we looked at, uh, the, uh, the stuff about what happens if someone sins against you and going with one person, then two. And it, it could read, if we're not careful, it's a bit like a, a legal handbook. Okay? This is the, the procedures and processes for dealing with sin in the church. Uh, if we just sort of pull it out of its setting in, in Matthew's gospel, it could even come across as a bit cold. But, but the whole point of it uh, it is to prevent people stumbling, to prevent people either from not coming into the kingdom or from stumbling out of it once they have got in. Uh, the cross and the message of the gospel should continue to shape the church. So two very simple points this morning. We'll look at the father's heart and then the family's heart. The father's heart and then the family's heart. That's the church family's heart. And the whole point is, of course, that the family's heart should reflect the father's heart. So let's start by looking at the father's heart. This is verses 10 through 14 and the parable of the lost sheep. At verse 10, Jesus gives a pretty clear instruction. See to it you don't despise one of these little ones. Now, these little ones aren't just children. But if you if you look a few verses above, they're any of um, those who come to believe in Jesus. And Jesus uses the phrase little ones, I think, to draw our attention, particularly to those that we might be tempted to, to look down on. Those who might be tempted to think are less important uh, in the church family. Uh, that could, of course, be children. We spoke last week about the way we rush our way through preparing children's work because it doesn't really matter and no grown ups are watching. But it could also be those that aren't of much interest to us selfishly. Uh, they're not as much fun to have around for Sunday lunch. They're not as interesting to hang out with uh, on a Sunday afternoon. Anyone, in other words, who believes in Jesus and is part of the family, but to whom we're, we're liable to be a little bit snooty. I don't despise any, says Jesus. And the first reason he gives is perhaps a bit surprising. Uh, do you see verse 10? I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. Uh, if you come to me a week ago and said, look, could you just give me some reasons not to look down on so-and-so in church. I think it would have taken me a long time before I got to, well, don't look down on them because of their angel in heaven who always is before the face of the Father. Now, what's Jesus speaking about? Now, some people have read this as a justification for believing that every Christian or every child sometimes has a, a, their own guardian angel. 
as if there's a kind of one-to-one -one correlation. You know, every Christian on earth has their corresponding angel in heaven to look after them. I'm not sure that's quite what Jesus is saying. Uh, rather, the point is this. Angels uh, in the Bible uh, are servants of God, messengers, uh, and they're servants of God to achieve his plans. Uh, his plan has been made very clear over the last couple of chapters. The plan of the Father and the Son uh, is to get Jesus to the cross and to rescue a people. Uh, and angels serve that purpose. Now, we don't know an awful lot about angels, if we're honest. We see them popping up at various times. Sometimes they bring messages and announcements. Uh, sometimes in books like Daniel, we get strange visions of them at war in the heavenly realms, spiritual realms, things we just don't know about. In the Old Testament, we see them protecting people sometimes or, or waging physical battles. But always it's to serve God's purposes. And always angels come across as mighty beings. They're not the kind of cute little you know, babies you see in uh, uh, Raphaelite paintings. Uh, they're not the sort of sweet angels that, that float across Christmas cards. Uh, these are mighty warrior beings. And so I think very simply, the point Jesus is making here is uh, there are angels who, who, who live in God's presence and before his face. These mighty beings, they are there to serve the church, including these little seemingly irrelevant ones. If these mighty warriors serve the humble and lowly, well, who do you think you are to look down on your fellow men? If Gabriel and Michael and the seraphim and the cherubim are not too important to serve little seemingly insignificant Christians. Well, how could any other person in the church be too important themselves? And then he moves from mighty angels to the mightiest of all, the father in heaven, and tells this famous story, uh, the parable of the lost sheep. Now, I suspect it's better known in Luke's gospel, uh, where it's told in the context of the woman who loses a coin and finds it, and most famously of all, uh, the prodigal son. In Luke's gospel, the emphasis is a little bit more on those kind of outside the kingdom. Whereas in Matthew, well, Matthew were dealing still uh, with the lost sheep, but the lost sheep who comes from within the kingdom, who wanders away from the kingdom. In other words, it, it's a little bit more about restoring those who have been in the church, but wander away rather than simply going and finding those who have always been on the outside. You don't want to overpress the difference between the two, but, but there is a different weight how the focus, in other words, is still on these little ones. Verse 10. And so the story. Now, children, you, you probably know this story. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one wanders away, does he not leave the 99 and go in search of the one that went astray? That's not a complicated story, is it? This shepherd is on the hillside. He's got all his sheep together and he realises one has gone missing. And so he leaves it, uh, leaves the 99 uh, and goes to search for the one. See how it's making Jesus' point already. And no one is too small, too irrelevant uh, for God to bother with. Uh, God never thinks, well, I've got 99. Who cares about that one? Uh, that one's been stupid wandering away. So let him face his own consequences. Oh, she's a, a silly sheep, a sinful sheep uh, leaving the fold. She knows protection is here. So on her own head, be it. No, he cares enough to chase, to go and fetch, to bring them home. And he does so with joy, verse 13. If he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. How does God feel when a Christian wanders away from the flock, seemingly turns their back on the gospel, but then returns, is brought back into the fold? Uh, is God waiting there 
arms folded, looking cross, waiting for a grovelling apology. Well, no, he's rejoicing. In fact, Jesus even says he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. Now, what's Jesus saying there? Is he saying that, that God is more pleased when we walk away from the church, having professed faith, and then come back, than if we stay faithful all along? Well, no, I don't think so. Now, that would seem very strange, as if sinning somehow pleased him more, uh, uh, particularly when we come back. Uh, rather, I think that the picture is this. A friend of mine uh, recently, another minister, uh, took his four kids to the park, went for a, 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 a walk through the woods. Uh, four kids, when he got back inside, started playing, they watched TV, he sat down to read a book or whatever. Uh, and after a while, realised he'd only come back with three. And an hour or so later, the police knocked on the door, he opened the door, and there were the police uh, with his missing daughter. And he was, as you might imagine, well, very embarrassed, but also overjoyed that she'd been found, monumentally relieved. Now, did he love that daughter more than the, the three that had stayed home that he hadn't lost? Well, well no. But just there's an overwhelming joy when someone who's lost is found. Something you thought had gone is recovered. And that, that's the idea here, I think. Like Jesus makes the striking point in order that if we are those who are at the moment in danger of wandering, or frankly, if we're those in the 99 who are looking at those who are wandering, we, we, ought to be, we need to be doubly convinced that God rejoices when we come home. Remember, of course, that sin, which is what wandering is ultimately, is against God, isn't it? It, it? We could read the parable in a kind of slightly cute way. Our silly little sheep accidentally wanders off. You know, sheep are a bit daft, aren't they? But when you think about what wandering away is, it is high-handed rebellion against God. It is someone who's been in the church, who has professed faith or grown up in the, the church community, who then turns their back and says, no, walks off whether they do it explicitly, I've had enough of this, I'm out of here, or whether they just slowly drift away, uh, like a rowing boat uh, whose mooring is cut, that just drifts slowly out to sea. That's often the way, isn't it, uh, that people move away from the faith. Uh, they don't phone round on a Sunday morning and let everyone know that that's it, I'm out of here. Uh, no, they don't come one week, and then they're back the next week, and then they're away for two weeks, and then they're back for a week, and then they're away for a month. And slowly, perhaps even without them noticing it, they drifted further and further from shore. If that is you this morning, then you need to know, first of all, that you're in great danger. It is dangerous to be away from God's flock. But all the more you need to know that he is delighted and rejoices if you'll just come home. He will have you, even though your sin has been against him, even though your wandering has been it flouting his grace and his love. How is he going to respond to you? Well, with joy. If you just come back and say, Father, forgive. That's good news for those of us who are drifting. And it should set the attitude for those who remain in the 99 that the Father's heart it is always to, to seeing sinners restored. And so, so should the family's heart. In verses 15 to 20, we see the family's heart, uh, the family of God, that is. The, the language is all family language, isn't it? If your brother sins against you. Uh, the church is the family of God. We are brother and sister to one another, sons and daughters of God. 
And so Jesus focuses attention on what happens if those relationships, those family relationships, as they so often do, uh, become fractious. Uh, Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him uh, alone. See, the sin is against you. This isn't busybodies, uh, all of us poking our nose into other people's business, or I think you've done that wrong, or um, I think you've been whatever it may be. It, it's not it's not nosiness, and nor is it Phariseeism, feeling it's upon us to correct absolutely every sin we see uh, out there in the church. There's a real realism here, by the way, isn't there? The church will be a place of sin. Uh, sometimes people... I get incredibly disappointed with church. It happens all the time. It's happened in every church that I've been involved with. And I don't think <laughs> don't think it's just me. Um, it, it's often the case. It's always the case uh, that, that we get disillusioned with church. Why don't people treat me better? Why don't people love me more? Why aren't people kinder? Why aren't people gentler? Why don't people pray more? Why aren't they more passionate in evangelism? Why do they not uh, love me more? Why are they not more interested? Why? There's a litany of sins we could list. And a lot of the time it'll just be true. Because we are sinners. And until we arrive safely home in heaven, that sin will remain. Yes, we should fight against it. Uh, yes, this uh, we shouldn't excuse it. But Jesus is realistic. So what do you do when someone sins against you? Uh, there's a number of steps, four steps. Uh, this might not be in some ways the, the most exciting corner of Matthew's gospel, but they're things that Jesus obviously thinks are important for the church and important for all of us to know. It's not as if this little bit on, on church discipline, as it's sometimes known, is just for ministers or something, is it? He clearly wants all the church to know about this. So what's to happen? Well, step one is you go personally, verse 15. You go and talk about it. And if he agrees uh, that he has sinned against you, uh, he repents, ask forgiveness. Well, there we go. Job done. It's done on the quiet. We don't make a fuss and we can move on. But if not, well, the second step, you go with two or three witnesses. Verse 16. Now, these aren't necessarily witnesses to the sin in the first place. They might not have seen the person, I don't know, lose their temperature, lose their, uh, lose their temper at you or steal your cash or whatever it is. But rather, these are people who are going to come along in the conversation and observe that conversation. Jesus is picking up an Old Testament principle that every uh, in the Old Testament, every crime had to be uh, witnessed by two or three witnesses in order to be proved. And of course, it might happen uh, that as you discuss again your grievance, the witnesses might end up saying, look, you're the one who needs to calm down. <laughs> Actually, your, your brother hasn't done anything wrong or not that serious. Uh, these aren't lackeys or henchmen that you take along. Uh, children, remember in uh, Harry Potter, uh, Malfoy, the bad guy, always has uh, uh, Crab and Goyle, I think their names are, aren't they, uh, on his shoulders. They're just henchmen. They just do whatever he says. Well, that's not the, the case here. Uh, these aren't just heavies to kind of bolster your case. No, these are two or three other good men or women in the congregation who can try and help resolve the conflict. But if that doesn't work, step three, and presuming um, uh, the person hasn't repented, repented therefore, well, verse 17, you go and tell it to the church. Now, Bible-believing Christians have interpreted that verse in all sorts of different ways. Within the, the Presbyterian uh, tradition, uh, which Christchurch Central is a part, um, that, that isn't meant to be read as you're just going to announce it on a Sunday morning to absolutely everybody. Uh, rather, uh, you go through that the elders, those given authority in the church to deal with these things, uh, that is how it would have worked in the days when Jesus was speaking. 
Now, we often think that uh, the way the church is organised nowadays has sort of come out of nowhere in the New Testament. But actually, the, the way the church is structured with what's called a presbytery or a council of elders, as it's often translated in, in the ESV, uh, that is the way it worked in the Old Testament too. Uh, you read about the presbytery in Luke's Gospel. And the presbytery, I'm afraid to say, in Luke's Gospel put Jesus to death. They are the council of elders who look after uh, Israel, God's people, uh, in each individual synagogue. Uh, in the days of Jesus, they would have a council of elders. And if there was a grievance, uh, you would go to them. You wouldn't just go and announce it on a Saturday morning. So I think it's very reasonable to understand it in those ways. Uh, and ultimately, uh, if the elders decide that the grievance is true and the person won't repent, well, what's the final result? Step four. What if he refuses to listen to them? Tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus is saying there that ultimately, if we high-handedly sin, then ultimately we need to be put outside the church. This is what's sometimes called excommunication. That seems very harsh, doesn't it? Who are we to judge? Well, in one sense, we're nobody. But Jesus commanded us to do this. Uh, do you see uh, how Jesus goes on? Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Th this has heaven's authority behind it, Jesus is saying. And he repeats the point. Again, I say to you, here's the same point, but in a different way. If two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, there's a verse we often pull out and use uh, as a great encouragement on Sunday mornings. Jesus is with us. And we quote this verse or at prayer meetings. Jesus is with us. Well, Jesus is with us in all those settings. But the particular context he makes that promise in is one of church discipline. Uh, the idea is that when the church makes a pronouncement on whether someone is in or out of God's kingdom, then it should be heard as God himself making that pronouncement. Now, instantly, as good Protestants, we're thinking, well, that, that, that can't be right. Uh, that sounds almost Catholic. Uh, surely we're not saying that the church gets to the final say on who is in and who is out or of God's people. And in one sense, of course, that's right. The church will get this wrong at times. And if the church gets it wrong, well, the person may very well still be going to heaven. In fact, we've got all sorts of instances in church history where good Bible-believing men and women were thrown out of the church because they were holding to the gospel, ironically. We see that with people like Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, William Tyndale, who translated the Bible uh, into English. All these men came under church discipline, but of course they were in the right. So Jesus isn't giving up his own power here and saying, I'll just leave it to everybody on earth. But he is trying to let us know that it is very serious when the church makes these pronouncements. And when they do so in line with God's word... Well, it's as if Jesus himself is making the pronouncement. A bit earlier in the year, some of us watched some videos uh, uh, by a guy called Scott Swain, who's a theologian, lives out in America. Uh, and he uses the, the illustration of a babysitter uh, to illustrate uh, the authority that's given to the church. So imagine you, you were going out for the evening, you've got kids, uh, and you say to the babysitter, look, you're not allowed to let anyone in the house. OK, here are the keys to the front door. You're not allowed to let anyone in. Um, apart from apart from Granny when she gets home from bingo. Okay, so when Granny gets home from bingo, you, you must let her in. But anyone else, okay, your boyfriend, your mates, uh, whoever else, not allowed in. 
Well, from then onwards, that babysitter does have authority in the house, authority over the keys to the front door, but only authority to do as the master of the house and the mistress of the house uh, have given her. It's delegated authority, in other words. So as long as she does what they say, she is enacting their will. So when her buddies come around and say, let us in, let us in, and she says no, uh, she's doing so not on her own authority, but on the authority of the house owners, the parents. Likewise, when Granny comes along and says, let me in, let me in, and she unlocks the door and lets her in, she's doing so on the authority of the parents. Now, is it conceivable that the babysitter might rebel, let in her boyfriend and lock out Granny in the cold? Yeah, it is. In which case, she has lost all authority. But the church here is to act in line with God's word. And when she does so, well, she, it is heaven itself that is acting. That is why church discipline is so serious. Now, let me just say here, just, just very briefly, um, that, that this is important for everyone who's a member of Christ Church Central to know. that There are processes for bringing grievances I just very quickly want to mention how that works in a Presbyterian church. I fully grant this isn't all coming out of the verse uh, in Matthew 18. But if we could have a slide up, uh, please, Tom, that, that demonstrates this. Uh, the way Presbyterianism is set up, which actually very much echoes the way the church was set up in the Old Testament too, uh, is a bit like this. Uh, at the bottom of the screen there, you'll see each individual church. There's all sorts of churches in our denominations. And each church has elders over them. So I want you to imagine for, for a moment that your problem was with me, okay, the minister. What would you do? Okay, it's important. I think, as I've said before, you know how to get me sacked. Okay, this is key for your membership of the church. You need to know how to get me sacked. What do you do? Well, you'd come to me personally if you think I've done something wrong against you, of course. Then you'd come with a couple of friends and that's fine. But eventually you would go to the church. You'd go to the elders, the other elders. They might agree with you, in which case, well, there we go. I'm going to come under discipline of the church. But what happens if they don't? Okay, what happens if the problem is with the elders? Well, if... The only place you could go was the local church. That would be it. You'd basically be stuffed. But I think this is part of the, the beauty of Presbyterianism. Now, what you can do is appeal to the presbytery. And the presbytery is the gathering of elders from all the different congregations, or at least a group of different congregations. So you see that each little E represents an elder. They all meet at presbytery. And one of the things that presbytery does, and we, we've been doing this over the last couple of years, is we meet almost like a court, you might say. Of course, sounds very grand. Don't imagine people with wigs and gowns and all the rest of it. But sometimes we have to deal with church discipline cases that come up from the different congregations. And so it may be that if all the elders at Christ Church Central go rogue, you will need to appeal to the presbytery, this external accountability, who will then be able to bring us into line. And just for the sake of completeness, if the whole presbytery goes on the wonk, you think, and you think they've still mistreated you, then you can go to Synod, which is the gathering of all the presbyteries. There are actually four presbyteries in IPC. Uh, and once a year, the Synod gathers. And so that is the final court of appeal, if you like. Now, I know that's not all in Matthew 18. You have to go elsewhere in the New Testament. We haven't got time uh, to, to justify all that this morning. But I wanted just to put that picture up uh, as a periodic reminder that that is how this would work uh, within IPC. Uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, but let's get back. Matthew 18, uh, as we wrap up, what is this telling us? Or what is, it, what is the significance here? Uh, two things. First of all, discipline is important and it's necessary. Uh, it seems shocking, doesn't it? Uh, I read an account just the other day of a woman who came under church discipline. She said this. Uh, she wrote an article. It began like this. Everyone was shocked. Whenever I told people my church had kicked me out, they unanimously expressed outrage. How could they be so cruel? What a bunch of hypocrites. Who are they to judge? 
I loved these responses, she says. I would sigh heavily, my eyes welling up with tears, as I recounted the day I received the letter from the holier-than-thou Reformed Baptist Church, informing me of my sins against God and their duty to break Christian fellowship with me. Without fail, my audience would look at me with pity and affirm how sorely I'd been mistreated, and I knew they would spread the news of this injustice far and wide, and I was pleased about that, too. Uh, this woman had stopped going to church, had more or less given up on the Christian faith. And eventually her church said, well, you're no longer a member then. They'd gone through the steps, they'd tried, but eventually, well, too much. And so she was put under the discipline of the church and declared to be outside rather than inside God's people. And she's very honest, isn't she? Uh, you can imagine how easy it would be to react like that. Oh, they're so judgmental. We're all sinners. How dare they exercise this kind of discipline? Holier than thou. What a bunch of hypocrites. Do they not sin too? Well, of course they do. The point is, do we sin? Isn't do we sin, but do we repent? Will we repent when we are challenged? As the article goes on, eventually this woman realises they've been right all along. As she says this in conclusion, I reflected back on the church that had ousted me. They had acted consistently. They stayed true to their biblical convictions and I began to feel admiration. It was not the actual withdrawal of fellowship that drew me back to God, but the simple fact the church itself had remained steadfast to the biblical standard. It is Jesus who teaches we need to do this church discipline, this excommunication, uh, ultimately. And you see, very tragically in England in particular, what a mess churches get into when they don't exercise discipline. Uh, there are denominations full of ministers who just don't believe the gospel, uh, who, who don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, who don't believe that he's the son of God, who don't believe that he died for our sins, and no one has ever disciplined them. In that sense, it doesn't matter if your, doc, if, your, if your denomination has good doctrinal standards. Okay, in IPC, we've got the, the Westminster Standard, a good book of doctrinal basis. But it's no use having a good doctrinal basis if all the ministers are allowed to just ignore it. It'd be like Chamberlain waving that white paper as he came back from negotiating with Hitler. I've achieved peace in our time because he's got a piece of paper. But if no one's going to listen to it, it's useless. Discipline is there to maintain the purity of the church. It is instituted by Jesus. And what's the purpose? This is so important as we close. What's the purpose? The purpose is to restore the lost sheep. It's not to get justice. If someone sins against you, the idea of going through these steps is not so that you can get justified. Ha, huh, I was right all along. How dare you treat like that, me like that? I need my pound of flesh. I need my apology. It's not even conflict resolution quite, is it? You see, this, that's why the, the parable of the lost sheep is there first of all. Uh, the, the, the purpose of this is to restore people to the kingdom. In other words, the purpose of discipline is for the good of the one who falls under the discipline. And that's such a challenge to our attitude, isn't it? It means the goal when we're sinned against, our goal when someone sins against us, should be their blessing. Not my day in court. Not me getting the grovelling apology that I so much deserve. Not me, in other words, standing on my rights and getting what I deserve. But rather me seeking the good of the one who's offended me. And that means we go about it in a gentle spirit. Go back to the, to the, 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 the parable of the lost sheep. What does the, lost, what does the shepherd do when he finds a lost sheep? Oh, what do you think you're doing, you stupid sheep? Do you know how many sleepless nights you've cost me? Do you know how much time I've had to waste looking for you? Do you know how cold it is up here? Uh, do you know what's going on with the 99 I've had to leave behind? Yes, I'll take you back. I suppose I have to. But I want an apology from you. I want you to know how sorry you are. I want you to make it up to me. 
No, he's delighted. He rejoiced. I found you. Well, that's meant to be our attitude to those who sin against us. Let me ask you, if you are a Christian, is that your attitude when people mistreat you, when people let you down? Or is your first thought, how dare they? Why am I being treated like this? Ultimately, this is all about the gospel again, isn't it? About not putting stumbling blocks in place, about having the church community shaped by the cross. God didn't stand on his rights. He had every right to say to all of us, you've walked away from me, stay away. I will act in justice. But instead, he took upon himself in the person of his son, the punishment that was due us. At the cross, as Jesus dies, he's being punished for the sins of all the lost sheep. For our sins, in other words. He doesn't demand his rights. In fact, Jesus gives up his rights, as we see time and time again in this part of Matthew, in order that we might be saved. And what he's asking us to do as his church is to do likewise. We've been forgiven far more than we'll ever need to forgive. And therefore, we're to become like that good shepherd who goes and seeks those who are wandering. Perhaps you can think of people who are drifting away from the faith, are wandering off from the flock. Perhaps you can think of those who've sinned against you in a way that is beginning to get dangerous. Go after them, says Jesus, but go after them for their blessing and not your own. Because that is the kind of shepherd I am. One who didn't account equality, my rights, something to be grasped, but gave them up. Humbled himself, humbled himself even to death in order that you and I might live. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that although we wander, uh, you pursued, that your grace is stronger than our sin. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you didn't stand on your rights, but you gave them up in order that we might be saved. We pray we might know the depths of your love, therefore. Pray for any this morning who are wandering, that we would know that you delight and rejoice when we come home. I will send your spirit to gather us, we pray. I will pray for our own hearts when we're sinned against or let down. Uh, make us gracious, turn us into people who seek not our own rights, but the good and blessing of others. Father, bless your church, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.